Today on the podcast, what's the point of a bar exam? It's supposed to ensure that all lawyers are qualified, right? What if it doesn't actually do that? Then we go from tests with questionable value to defendants with questionable judgment and a former CEO who got a serious bench slap. Plus, we bring you the biggest legal news of the week. Stay with us. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. On the Merits is the place to find the best journalism Bloomberg Law has to offer. Each week, we feature reporters and newsmakers who have the scoop on the latest trends that are affecting the profession and the legal world writ large. Today, we'll be talking about possible changes to the bane of every law school graduate's existence, the bar exam. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories of the week. It's looking more likely that the mega law firm Jones Day will be able to continue its unusual compensation system after most of the attorneys suing it dropped their case. The former Jones Day attorneys, all women, had alleged that the firm's notoriously secretive black box method for determining compensation causes its female attorneys to receive less pay than their male counterparts. Five of the six attorneys suing Jones Day withdrew their suits last week, but to add to the secrecy, it's unclear if there was a settlement involved, or if so, for how much. The firm ranked 10th last year in terms of total gross revenue. A prominent election law attorney received a rare rebuke from a federal appeals court last week in a case accusing Texas of violating voting rights rules. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ordered Mark Elias, an attorney with Perkins Coie who frequently represents the Democratic Party, and other Perkins Coie attorneys to pay legal fees and other costs to the state of Texas. The court said Elias resubmitted a motion to the court that had already been denied, creating more work for it and for the defendant in this case, the state of Texas. Perkins Coie said in a statement that it disagrees with the ruling and strongly stands behind Elias and its other attorneys. And finally, the brother-in-law of the Vice President of the United States of America is one of the most highly paid executives at Uber, according to a recent filing from the company. Tony West, the husband of Kamala Harris's sister Maya, received around $12 million in compensation from the Silicon Valley Transportation Company, most of it in stock. Uber brought West on in 2017 as its chief legal officer, Before that, the Stanford Law grad had worked at PepsiCo, the Obama Administration Justice Department, and the big law firm Morrison & Forrester. A thought that probably crosses the mind of every law school grad when they're studying for the bar is, ugh, why do I even have to do this? Well, that's actually a good question, and it's a question many states and even some national groups are starting to ask themselves. What is the point of the bar exam? What value does it provide? Does it have unintended consequences that actually hurt the legal profession? Those are questions that reporter Sam Skolnick examined in a story running this week at Bloomberg Law. Skolnick said a total overhaul of the bar exam could be in the not-too-distant future, and that the experience many lawyers had during the pandemic will be a guide to this overhaul. But in the very near term, he said many states are starting small by looking at exam cut scores. Cut scores are basically a synonym for bar exam passing scores. So that's the number that you need to achieve after taking what's usually a two-day test uh, full of multiple choice questions and essays. So that sounds pretty simple. It's just sort of the, the minimum score you have to get on the bar exam. But it sounds like you're reporting that some states are considering lowering that that score. Well, why are they doing that? Yeah. Um, so what I found is I was uh, asked 
to, uh, as part of the reporting for the story, to look at all 50 states, basically to go to each of them to ask um, whether or not uh, several were considering changes to their cut score, maybe lowering them. Uh, what I was able to find was uh, Texas, Arizona, Michigan, and Idaho. I had officials uh, tell me that, in fact, uh, this was something that uh, they likely would be considering uh, down the road as the national bar exam and the main national testing group called the National Conference of Bar Examiners. They're in the midst of reforming how the bar exam is going to look ultimately um, for many states that they're going to offer. So in other words, it sounds like the lowering of the cut scores could be a prelude to much uh, broader changes with the bar exam in the near future. They would be a complement to them, to the other changes. Yeah, the other changes have to do with the substance of the exam. So this uh, National Conference of Bar Examiners, uh, they're looking at making the bar exam more of a skills-based test, a legal skills-based test, as opposed to a knowledge, strictly a knowledge-based test where uh, you need to simply memorize certain facts and, and figures and the like. Um, and so this would be a complement to it. It would be among the many reforms since the pandemic hit, the bar exam has really been up for grabs in so many different ways in which there have been suggestions for certain types of changes uh, to the bar. And now the cut score is coming into play, given what California uh, did um, last year in lowering its cut score. That really started things off. Yeah, so California already did this. They're, you know, first out of the gate, as they are in a lot of things. Um, you know, what happened there? How did that work out? Uh, was it, you know, chaos in the streets or or did everything go, <laughs> you know, did everything go fine? It is lawyers running amok. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, oh, I hate uh, to see that. No, it's not quite that bad. Um, so for years, uh, prior to the California Supreme Court deciding, I think it was like July of last year, uh, to, to lower the score. They had been, the court, the High Court of California, had been pressured um, from law school deans. Uh, there are like roughly a dozen uh, ABA-accredited law schools, uh, as well as activist types and others, to lower the cut score with a sense that by doing so, you'd be able to increase diversity uh, among the ranks of um, lawyers, accredited and licensed lawyers in California. We've talked about the what, you know, what's going on here, but now we're getting into the why. Why are states doing this? And, and it sounds like based on your reporting, uh, they're doing this for uh, diversity reasons. Is that right? So, yeah, I, yes, with, a, with an asterisk. Um, California um, hinted that that was part of the reasoning behind it. They referred to previous stories, uh, previous studies, rather, the state bar had done, but they didn't specify the, the specific reason California State Bar said it, it lowered the cut score uh, was because it was so high. It was typically ranked among uh, like the second highest in the country. They wanted to basically implied that they wanted to get it down closer to the national mean or average. But here's the thing is what's happening simultaneous to that is that there's more and more evidence accruing that show what happens when you lower um, bar exam cut scores, even minimally, it increases um, the ranks very quickly, uh, it disproportionately uh, of um, black and Hispanic uh, test takers, those who might have failed the exam before, but only failed it very narrowly. Um, and so when you lower the cut scores even narrowly, you get a greater percentage, um, especially of first-time test takers uh, who are black and Hispanic, 
who are now all of a sudden pass and, and can become licensed, become lawyers. Um, this is really vital. So say a number of law school professors who have studied the issue who I talked to, who note historically how underrepresented um, the legal profession has been um, among with, uh, with black and Hispanic lawyers, especially in comparison with demo- national demographics, generally speaking. It's another argument in favor of lowering the cut score, and it's actually something that's sensitive to the moment that we're in now with a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, with the pandemic, there are record numbers of joblessness. Uh, uh, joblessness rates are as high as they've been in many, many years of the decades. Evictions are at an all-time high, again, for the last several years or decades. What this means is that you have this whole growing subset of Americans that are in often desperate need of civil legal help where they're not guaranteed a right to an attorney. Um, And what proponents of change are arguing is that not only would lowering the cut score increase diversity, it would increase the number of lawyers, generally speaking, including uh, most importantly, these young lawyers who are most typically the ones who are eager to do sort of mission-driven legal work um, and work with folks who need this type of what's called access to justice or access to civil legal services type help. Well, so, you know, it sounds like it's already happened in California. Things are going, I guess, okay there. You know, it sounds like it's it's still pretty early. Other states are thinking about doing this. Let's talk about some of the arguments why uh, you wouldn't want to do this or why some people would think this was a bad idea. Um, you know, I'd imagine that people would say, you know, if you look, lower the cut score, less qualified lawyers are, you know, become licensed and their clients receive, uh, you know, poor legal advice. Certainly, absolutely. It's a long-standing argument. The concern is that if you lower cut scores, um, that you're going to ultimately decrease the average level of competence of in- incoming classes of new attorneys. And to further bolster that the notion of that argument and why it's important is that and this is a really important point, is that state bars insist, and they note very, their first primary mission is to protect the public. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to, is through certification of legal uh, classes and, and incoming lawyers, it's to make sure that uh, the public is protected from not just incompetent, but um, shady lawyers as well. Sure. Now, here's the interesting counter to that, David, is that um, this study that I mentioned uh, it looked at discipline rates, um, and it looked at the relationship between cut scores and the number of, for example, complaints, formal charges, disciplinary action against attorneys. Uh, and it, it determined that actually there's no relationship that exists mm. uh, between when you lower cut scores, you don't find an increase in these types of adverse behaviors. Well, finally, let's take a big step back and talk about the bar exam as a whole. Um, You know, you touched on something that I want to get into more, which is that, you know, people say that the bar exam is a knowledge test and it should really be a skills test. Uh, And now, as you just mentioned, it doesn't seem like there's a, you know, really strong relationship between the score you get on the bar exam and your, you know, quality as a lawyer. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but or extrapolating, I should say, um, you know, does the bar exam need to be completely reformed, you know, just kind of thrown out the window and built from the rebuilt from the ground up? So that, that's a great question. And that's, that's the meta issue, uh, so to speak, that's come up over the last year, really, ever since 
the pandemic hit. Advocates for reform have brought up this broad-based issue, and what they did initially was to argue not so much for what they some of them call stopgap measures, kind of which, uh, and if not stopgap, maybe the less totally effective measures like lowering the cut score. What many of them want to do is to get rid of the bar exam entirely and institute what's called diploma privilege, which is a system that states like Wisconsin have had uh, in in place for more than a century. Um, in which you graduate from certain schools, pass certain classes, and basically the school acts as the barometer, acts as the, if you pass, then that's basically enough for most folks to gain access to a license, a permanent law license. So what happened is last year, um, diploma privilege, excuse me, was tried out in several states, Washington, Oregon, and Utah, but they only meant it to be kind of a stopgap during the heart of the pandemic um, as a way to basically provide some relief um, for recent law school graduates who have been going through just a world of hurt um, yeah, yeah. and grave concern with tens of thousands of dollars of law school debt uh, and no immediate way to, to gain a life. That's so interesting. It reminds me of just so many things that have happened during the pandemic where we had to stop doing them because it was an emergency and then we realized that maybe we didn't need to be doing them all along. Uh, I'm, you know, of course, again, not saying that we should just, you know, throw the the bar exam uh, on the ash heap of, of history. But it does sound like there are a lot of states and, and a lot of, um, you know, state bars that are really questioning how much of this is is really necessary. Now, now that we've had a year of of doing things totally differently. It does seem that way, and and I'll say even though that you know getting rid of the bar exam might be uh, improbable over the next one, two, three years, maybe five. Uh, after that, I think you know you, anything is up for it's all up for grabs, really. Um, and in part also because some of these states that tried diploma privilege over uh, during the October 2020 test, they all told me for a story that I did about the thousand plus lawyers that were licensed through this pro through these programs. They're all delighted with how it worked, and as are the employers, who are uh, now, you know, including big, big law firms and big uh, district attorney shops, etc. They're pleased with the quality of lawyers they're getting as well. All right, well, that's all I have. Um, Sam Skolnick uh, is a reporter on our Business of Law desk. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, David. Really appreciate the time. You may have heard about our legal intelligence team here at Bloomberg Law. They're a group of reporters and editors that track literally hundreds upon hundreds of legal dockets all across the country, all the time. And as a result, they see some interesting documents from time to time. So one of our editors on that team, Carmen Castro-Pagan, is here today to share one of those documents with us. Thank you so much for joining me here. Uh, I understand you have a uh, an issue with a judge getting angry over a trademark suit. What's What's going on? So to give you some um, background on this case, the case started four years ago when the plaintiffs, this is Oasis Legal Finance Operating Company, this is a very well-known litigation funding company, um, sued its former CEO for allegedly misusing the company's trademarks by branding his new venture with Oasis. Ooh, okay, so just to make sure I understand. So the the CEO of the company left. He was fired. Oh, 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 yeah. He was fired, 
And he called his new company Oasis as well. Yes. I can see why the old company would be not happy with that. So they filed a suit. They filed a suit. Um, the former CEO's new companies actually were named Oasis Legal Finance Group oh. and Oasis Disability Group. So you can see it. Ooh. Well, so it sounds like the, the former CEO, you know, in my own, um, uh, uh, you know, esteemed legal judgment, doesn't sound like he has much of a case, but maybe I'm wrong. What, what happened here? Actually, you're right. In September 2020, um, Judge Gettleman ruled against the former CEO and held that he misused the Oasis trademarks. A few days later, Oasis moved for attorney's fees, and last week, the judge issued an opinion that started, and I quote, in the prolific litigation concerning the fee petition before this court, Defendants and their attorneys have demonstrated a continued inability or unwillingness to follow the directions and the rules of the court, opting instead to prolong unnecessarily this litigation. Close quote. Ooh, so the former CEO, uh, it sounds like not only did he lose the case, but he also has been unwilling or uncooperative in paying the legal fees of his former employer. Oh, yes, yes. And apparently, the, the judge went further. Judge Gettleman said, defendant's response to the fee petition is, and I quote, incoherent and ineffective as their behavior throughout this case. Yikes. So it's, I mean, I imagine that judges are typically, that's not their first option, where if they're mad at a, a defendant or a plaintiff, they don't, you know, call them out or put them on blast in, in an opinion, right? They, they, there must have been some other stuff that went on here before this. They usually don't. And yes, the judge gave um, a lot of examples, um, situations where the defendants in this case didn't comply with the court's orders, with the local rules, and basically impeded the, the normal process of the litigation. Wow. So that's that's a uh, I guess my uh, my boss Josh Block would call that a bench slap. Oh that, yes, that's a, that's that's a real bench slap. Yes. And to give you just the close up of this, um, the judge the judge approved um, award fees for the plaintiffs for over three million dollars. This was actually what the plaintiffs were seeking, and the judge gave it completely to them. Ouch. All right. Well, Carmen, uh, thank you for bringing that uh, to us. Uh, hopefully, I never find myself in, in that position, um, but uh, you never know. Uh, Carmen uh, is an editor with uh, our legal intelligence team. Thanks, Carmen. Sure. Thank you, David. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our executive producer is Josh Block, and our editor is Jessica Coombs. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We have the handle at B-Law, just that, B-L-A-W, at B-Law. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. 
As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.